0: three 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 one nine three three online at my premier ortho.com
1: Good afternoon. It is Friday, july thirteenth. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Stan Jostrebsky. This week we'll spend the next hour talking about historic preservation and the push to save some of the state's historic structures. We hope you will be a part of that discussion. You can call in at 812 811 or call us toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can go to our website, WFIU.org slash noon edition, where we've got We've got a live chat now up and running. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Here in studio to help facilitate the discussion today are Tina Conner, the Executive Vice President of Indiana Landmarks, which publishes a list we're going to be talking about of the 10 most endangered sites in the state. Also, Steve Wyatt, the Executive Director of Bloomington Restorations, Incorporated, and Amy Walker, an architectural historian with the Indiana Division of Historic Preservation and Archaeology. Thanks to the three of you for being here today. Um, I want to, first of all, get a sense in a very general way from each of you why you all think it's important to save some of these uh, buildings, structures, etc. And, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people out there who could see this in two ways. You could look at, for instance, saving the theater that Red Skelton got his start in. That's obviously, I think, historic to a lot of people. But then there are people who would look at, a decaying bridge near New Harmony and go, well, why don't we just tear that thing down and build something that's bigger, longer, safer, et cetera. Um, And so I think there are probably these competing mindsets among people who might be listening to the program. Uh, Tina, why don't we start with you and we'll go across. What is your sense of, of why these things should be preserved?
0: Indiana landmarks promotes preservation because it makes for a much more interesting place to live. Uh, if people go to Europe, they typically go to see old things that express the heritage of the places they're visiting, uh, not places that are all completely new. And so while we think there's plenty of room for new things, we think it is old things that give places um, a more distinctive character and, and um, more individuality.
1: Steve? I think
2: that's what I would say, too, pretty much. Uh, It really is a sense of place you get from old buildings and old neighborhoods. Uh, Otherwise, it'd just be like every place else. Uh, For example, in Bloomington, I mean, imagine Bloomington without its courthouse, its courthouse square, its core neighborhoods, its landmark buildings. Uh, It would be a pretty sad place, I think, with those things gone. Uh, And uh, you can see communities that haven't preserved their heritage. And uh, there's a real difference and a real sense of loss in those areas because uh, people realize that there used to be, you know, a, a, an old city in this town and it's, it's gone now. And when you travel, like Tina was saying, you can go to places that have preserved their their uh, historic buildings and neighborhoods. Uh, and it's just wonderful to you get a real sense of time transport. Like you can imagine yourself living, you know, well before your time and, and, and experiencing what other people experienced who were who lived generations before you. Um, So it's just a quality of life issue. And uh, plus, these these buildings make great places to live in and work in and play in. Uh, And uh, it would just be, uh, I think, pretty sad to not have them today. Amy, your thoughts?
3: I agree with both um, Steve and Tina. I think it's also every community has that building that identifies them the, either the local people it stands out because it 's the courthouse or it 's that church on the corner or you know think of you know the view from monument circle I mean, pretty much anyone in the state realizes oh yeah monument circle that that's Indiana that 's Indianapolis uh, so I think every community i mean it doesn 't have to be the, the scale of monument circle certainly but every community has that identifying feature and you know typically it 's not the brand new feature it 's usually something that's that's older that 's you know, people identify generations over. So I think, I think it's important to acknowledge those and, and preserve them when that's possible.
1: Let me start with you and go back the other way on the panel and <laughs> okay. ask, is there a distinction to be made between a structure which is merely old and one that is historic? Um, you know, there's a lot of, of course, uh, we've, we've mentioned buildings in Europe, hundreds and hundreds of years old. Um, some of them are not in great shape. I've seen some of them oh, yeah. myself. Um, how do you decide between what's old and what's historic and thus needs to be preserved or refurbished?
3: Um, that's always a tough question, I think, because, I mean, you can look at it from from probably our perspective where we can get into the, the nitpicky stuff of why something should be saved. Um, but I think – from the perspective of the office that I work in, we're the, the State Preservation Office for Indiana. And what we consider historic is anything that's 50 years old. Or well, it could get historic designation if it's 50 years old or older, which is kind of crazy to think that we're looking at stuff from 1962. But, um, you know, that that's kind of the, the federal standard is it's the 50 year mark. That's kind of anyone in, in preservation kind of uses that as a general guideline. That's not to say that something that's newer than that. Couldn't be recognized for some special element um but you know that's kind of the general general rule that that we go by um, you know and that's not to say that everything that's fifty years old or older should be or can be, but an effort should be made to probably identify it, look into it and and see what the history of that you know place or feature or whatever what that history is,
2: yeah, I think that um yeah, we use the 50-year rule too, of course, in, in preservation, and it's just a uh, kind of the starting point. Um, and uh, from there, you can look at the integrity of the structure. I mean, does it have the original windows? Does it have uh, other character-defining features uh, like the uh, original uh, doors and um, and the interiors? What are they like? What, what's the siding like or the, uh, the masonry? Um, And what's its surroundings like? Are they like they used to be – I mean, a a building is not just a building. When you look at its history, it's its its setting too. Um, So um, is it a part of a neighborhood of old buildings? And that all kind of weighs into whether something's really worth preserving just because – you look at it. You start looking at it because it's old, but then you decide whether it's really worth preserving. And – It also depends on, you know, who's doing the observation and who's doing the the judging, I suppose, you know, if you're looking at whether to save an old building or not um, because people use different standards. Uh, Somebody could just like that kind of building and say, I want to restore it. And uh, uh, we we cheer all those kinds of things on because uh, you can – once the building is gone, it's gone and there's no way to bring it back. You can make a replica maybe, but it's not going to be the same. Uh, So uh, if you're going to err, I think you should err on the side of preservation.
1: Sounds like a lot you know, of this is finding the story behind a structure or finding the impact that it has on some person or group of people. Is that accurate?
0: That That's true. And it's also a moving target because 50 years advances, of course, with every passing year. And then there are special cases. We have an Indiana Modern Committee at Indiana Landmarks, for example. And those are people who love mid-century and Somewhat post mid century architecture, and they want to make sure that things that may not be 50 yet are paid attention to and are still around to preserve when they hit that 50 year mark, because they're, they're they become an endangered class uh, of buildings. Um, so so while we also adhere to that 50 year horizon, we we sometimes look ahead. We also consider we have an African American. Um, Landmarks Committee, and sometimes landmarks associated with African Americans have not been the highest style, the most lavish buildings, and therefore can be subject to more jeopardy at an earlier point. And so they may not look distinguished from the outside, but they may be very important and full of meaning to particular populations. So every case is different, and and we try to listen to the people who need our help. And, and if they really care about something, then it, it's worth investigating, even if it doesn't quite measure up to some of the. The, the
1: typical rules. Reminder that you can call in and be a part of our discussion today about historic preservation in Indiana. Call us at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can visit WFIU.org slash Noon Edition and be a part of our live chat or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Uh, is there... Consideration ever given to whether a site might be useful again as to whether it gets restored? Uh, Steve, for instance, you said, you know, work in it, live in it, play in it. Uh, Are there different sorts of considerations given to how something might be used later rather than just appreciated later in terms of whether or how it gets restored? Well, I think that
2: use is very important. And without use, there's not really a reason for the building to exist. Uh, Use will generate income generally. Uh, It'll give people the means to maintain the building, uh, restore and maintain the building, and make sure that it lasts uh, another 50 years and onto the hands of the next people that uh, have the building. Uh, So we always look for the use. Without a use, the building's really endangered. Uh, there's only so much room for you know house museums in this world, and I think we're just about at capacity, if not
1: beyond already amen <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh revenue, and I wonder if if all of you think that that's an increasing consideration going forward because it seems that a lot of these are buildings that, you know, would need to have some substantial money poured into them to get back to a state where people would be able to enjoy them adequately. And so it would be helpful if the group that finally takes on what is often, I would think, a costly proposition to restore them gets their money back over some period of time. Is that a consideration? Is there a cost-benefit analysis that's done?
0: Oh, developers certainly do cost-benefit analyses all the time, and there are certain types of buildings that have fallen out of one use that are really prime for repurposing. Schools, for example, are all over the state being turned into housing um, so that you can live where you used to go to school. Um, And sometimes organizations like ours, Indiana Landmarks, make a market. You know, we take a building that we, that we know no developer would tackle because it wouldn't pencil out. But we know that it's somehow a linchpin in the broader revitalization of an area or, um, or it's worth investing in to attract another buyer. Um, so from both standpoints, I mean, from a businessman's standpoint or businesswoman's standpoint, it's, it's important. It's got to work financially. And it's also a, a, a green issue imagine if we sent every old building to the landfill so that we could build something new and efficient. Um, It would be extremely wasteful. And you know, we're soon giving an award to a a little kid who did a science fair project where he thought he was going to analyze and show that replacement windows were better and more efficient. And it turned out that his project verified that old windows conserved more energy. And So, you know, a lot of people are thinking that they have to replace old windows, and really they don't. They just need to make them work properly.
1: We mentioned uh, the idea of what a building or a structure would be used for going forward. Uh, Some of the places on these lists tend to be homes or other public buildings. Is it easier for a structure to be protected if – we know more about what it did previously before it became disused. I mean, is there more of a utility, for instance, uh, and more of a, a draw to the developers if you say we're preserving the theater where Red Skelton got his start versus, hey, here's this old bridge somewhere that maybe you went across in a car once between Indiana and, and Illinois. I mean, does that consideration come into it at all?
2: Oh, sure, sure, certainly. I mean, just look at the West Baden Springs Hotel and all the people, like, FDR and you can fill me well like Al Capone. I mean, it there it and, certainly
0: yeah. has a story, and I, I do detect some um, some hostility to the Harmony Way Bridge in, <laughs> <laughs> in between New Harmony and Illinois. Um, it's a
3: fantastic bridge. It though. is a
0: fantastic bridge, and it's really a part of the heritage and culture of that area. And and I have to say, it can be fixed for nine million dollars, and it's going to cost twenty five million to build a new one. So once again. Considering the economy and green issues, doesn't it make sense to fix something old? You know, the Depression-era folks who are parents and grandparents, great-grandparents, they were in the habit of repairing things that broke. And Bill Cook and the Cook family and here in Bloomington are great proponents of fixing broken things and making them work for another 100 years. And so isn't that just a prudent uh, thing to do? If you can, rather than just throwing something in the trash and building something new that inevitably these days will not last a 100 years.
1: Well, I guess well, I guess we mentioned the, the bridge a couple of times. We've talked to people in our newsroom who are are definitely raising eyebrows at this idea of of preserving the bridge. And you know, there are so many so many considerations here. You've got two states involved. You've got monetary considerations. You've got historical considerations. Um, so it's a very complex issue, no it doubt is. about it. Um, uh, I wonder, do you find? resistance from people, any of you, uh, when you go to them and you say, I want to preserve this thing, which has this history, and you tell them what the history is, do people ever just raise an eyebrow and go, so, what do I care?
2: Well, personally, when, when I'm – I work, you know, just with Bloomington Restoration, so we do uh, work – we're not for profit that deals uh, with historic preservation in Bloomington and Monroe County only, so I don't get beyond the county line, uh, but that kind of question – comes up when you talk to somebody about whether they should they're, they're, they come to you basically they, they come to me and they say what should I do with this building I don't know should I tear it down should I uh, put money into it and uh, I usually don't stress the historic parts as far as you know who was who used it and all that kind of thing I, I stress the, uh, the the dollars and cents part mm-hmm. of it because I think that's usually the most powerful argument for most people and uh and usually the building does have a, a, a strong case to be made, like Tina was saying. So you can repair it and reuse it for less than you could uh, spend to, to build. Uh, we've, we have an affordable housing program where we uh, buy endangered um, old houses in uh, Bloomington and Steinsville and Ellettsville and uh, restore them for first time um, low to moderate income homebuyers. And uh, we've done about 25 or 26 of those houses now. And some of the houses we've done to that program, we've built new houses on vacant lots. And we've looked at our, our, our spending and we find that it costs less to rehabilitate and acquire an old house than it does to uh, to build a new house that looks like an old house. So people have this this misconception that uh things when they get old should be thrown away and and replaced. And I think that kind of mentality has really passed. That's more prevalent, I think, maybe twenty, thirty Forty years ago, uh, but there's still some people that think that way. I know my, my, my parents probably think that way. My my
1: my mom, mom doesn't, but my dad does. Uh, so, um, on the other hand, are there people you come across who are very convinced that modernization and progress and this sort of um, manifest destiny way of thinking is the way to go, and that people these these sorts of people would think doesn't this sort of effort get in the way of Progress doesn't it stop us from building the newest, the greatest, the best? Oh, I
2: think that the mindset uh, among a lot of people that are in positions of of authority these days, and in uh, city government, state government, other places, understand that progress involves old buildings, old neighborhoods, and using that that built resource as a as the foundation and springboard for new investment and and new economic activity. So it would be squandering a major investment that previous generations had made if you were just to go in and, and scrap it and start afresh.
3: I do think it's important, though. I mean, I think anyone in preservation can acknowledge that it's really good to start out talking about the money portion of it from the get go. I mean that that's what gets people's attention. That's what gets developers' attention. I know, particularly with those really tough to revitalize resources. um, there's a an African American baseball stadium in Indianapolis, it's Bush Stadium, and I know Indiana Landmarks has been involved with that. And they've got a, – there's a developer who's turning it into apartments, which there's renderings online and what it's going to look like. I can't wait for it to be – done because I've lived in Indianapolis for, what, ten and a half years. And Bush Stadium has always been – they've been just trying to figure out – find a use for it. And what – short of a baseball stadium, what do you use a baseball stadium for? And they tried a couple of different things and it just – it never really took off. And then you get somebody who's really kind – of, throws out this crazy idea and they go, huh that could actually work. And, you know, I don't know what the phase of construction is right now, but um, I mean, I think it's fantastic and it's got this amazing history and it's this, you know, beautiful um, facility and, you know, I can't wait to, you know, see what it looks like when it's all done because it's this really innovative idea.
1: I've seen those drawings and uh, it uh, does do a nice job of making the concourse mm-hmm. into into the apartment space. And I think even keeping a small baseball stadium like Little League size in the, what yeah. would have been, you know, the outfield at that yeah. point. And, um, you know, I think I lived in Indianapolis for a number of years and, and would drive by it, you know, on the way to the west side of town and, and on the way to the speedway or something and go and, you know, I wonder what's there just as, mm-hmm. you know, a baseball fan or something and not. And then you see these. Apocalyptic pictures on this on the Indianapolis Star side of my God, what's happened to the inside of this? Everything's falling down, and everything's uh, you know got dust all over it. And um, is it is it necessarily a bad thing that people let it get to the point of that sort of dis, disrepair, or does it maybe help in sort of a counterintuitive way that you can have that sort of problem that comes to a property and then? it would raise awareness in people and go, oh, maybe something needs to be done here. Is it is it bad that they get to disrepair in some respects?
0: I, yes, <laughs> because that means it's going to cost a whole lot more to recover it. You know, when, when something gets – I can see your point that sometimes it's a crisis that can precipitate a solution, but um, lack of maintenance and lack of preventive care over decades is never a good thing. Uh, it, it'll always cost cost more to, to fix. And in the case of Bush, um, that's one of the reasons it couldn't be reused for an original sports purpose is that it had declined so far, and those kinds of uses typically require <coughs> municipal subsidy. And, you know, the city was not in a position to fork over millions to To put it back in the shape that it had been when the Indians left in 96. And so it took somebody like John Watson, a developer with an unusual out of left field idea that uh, is turning it into housing. So now you can look over the diamond from your cocktails in your living room.
1: I sort of anticipated that would be your answer. And my my next question comes out of that, which is, does there need to be more done in the interim between a building becoming disused or abandoned in some way and the restoration to ensure that it does not fall into such a state of disrepair that your costs go th- through what's left of the roof, I guess?
0: I, I don't know what how to legislate that uh, or or that people would want that kind of um, regulation but we've uh, there was a right-sizing cities conference because of course now with the post recessionary environment especially in cities like Detroit but, but every city has lots of foreclosures lots of vacancy that they didn't have before and so there is a temptation to tear things down because isn't isn't it's safer to have a you know a vacant lot than it is uh, a a board, a building that's either boarded or not properly maintained and um a Washington DC real estate economist has done uh, studies and f- that have shown that historic areas fared much better during the recession there's less vacancy fewer foreclosures in those areas, and so, just in a preventive way, looking forward, um, I would think that that cities would consider, okay, what do we have in our environment that could be designated, and wouldn't that be a prudent move to take to help stabilize and smooth out some of the uh, ups and downs in the economy
1: Amy, what about from an archaeological perspective in terms of preserving some of these things that are now being uncovered, uh, what about the long-term preservation of of just even an area? If you suspect something is in this, you know, one square mile area, can you say, look, we need to put some sort of special designation on this to ensure that it doesn't get worse than it is?
3: I will offer my huge disclaimer right now that I am not an archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, you know, call our archaeology staff. They can really give you a good answer. Um, you know, yeah, I think archaeology is is just as important as the above ground structures that that you you see. Um, they predate anything that we have built in Indiana. Um, I know we we document them. You know, there's an archaeological survey program that they maintain. Uh, we nominate different archaeological sites to the National Register of Historic Places, not to the degree that we do for above ground resources, but you know archaeology is still important. It's still your history. Whenever Uh, September is Archaeology Month and – they do different events statewide, and they always have tons of people that show up. And they bring in artifacts. Like, so, Hey, I found this in the field across the street, or and you know they they do a an artifact roadshow at the state fair at the DNR building, and um, people can bring stuff in and at least have it identified. And so, what is this? How old is it? You know, just because people are curious about that stuff, and it generates so much interest. So yeah, archaeology is is definitely is important. You just it, it's harder to see because. You have to dig for
1: it. <laughs> In many cases, you can't see it
0: exactly. <laughs> well, and, and often we don't want to identify it precisely on the radio, for example. Yes, because exactly. uh, there are laws. There are people who will come and raid it of yeah. of artifacts that are what gives it meaning, and so you want to keep things intact.
1: All right. Well, we've reached the bottom of the hour. We need to take a quick break here on Noon Edition. But during our break, you're welcome to call us if you're listening to our discussion of historic preservation in Indiana. Our telephone numbers are 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Find us on Twitter as well at Noon Edition. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes.
4: This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net and from Premier Ortho, online at mypremierortho.com. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, wfiu.org.
1: Edition on WFIU, I'm Stan Today with us in studio for our discussion of historic preservation in Indiana are Tina Connor, the Executive Vice President of Indiana Landmarks, Steve Wyatt, who is the Executive Director of Bloomington Restorations, Incorporated, and Amy Walker, an architectural historian with the Indiana Division of Historic Preservation and Archaeology. Um, Steve, I wanted to get back to something you said at the very beginning. You said you were interested in, for instance, the fact that there were like... Like the courthouses that that didn't make, for instance, the city of Bloomington like any place else, is what you said. And I I got to thinking about that and I, I wondered if there was a if there was a sort of a a funny way that was exactly wrong, in as much as each county in Indiana pretty much has a courthouse. A lot of the courthouse squares look very similar to to one another. Does that make it hard for people to because there is this sort of standardization of what a courthouse square I think is, does that make it harder for people to appreciate some of these buildings, some of the intricacies of them, some of the little quirks like the fish at the top or the tree growing out of the Greensburg courthouse, things like that?
2: You know, I guess it's kind of like Eskimos and snowflakes. They see lots of differences and maybe uh, because I, I, I can see detail in some of these courthouses. But you know, if you look at the book of Indiana courthouses, a picture book, what's it called, 90s? Ninety-two, whatever. Yeah,
0: magnificent ninety-two. I think. Right,
2: right. There is a wide variety there, and in some cases, they are not old courthouses, um, and and it's not just the courthouse; it's the surroundings of the courthouse that makes the sense of place. Uh, if, you, if the square is in pieces around the courthouse, um, then you're getting down to the point where you just have a plan, you know, a grid plan. That's all that remains of what was once a, a thriving. Vibrant area of, of a community, and uh, so it would really reduce the quality of life if you didn't have uh, that courthouse and, and and that square and the surrounding. It's true. The courthouse sections. square in Bloomfield looks very different than the courthouse square in Bloomington. Right, and uh, yeah, so it's it's I think really important for uh, people like people in our group. We're a membership-based group. Uh, it's a private group. Uh, uh, people who join together because they want to try to uh, help preserve uh, Bloomington, and Monroe County, and uh, we're a grassroots organization, and and we exist just because in the 1970s people started saying, no, this shouldn't be happening when buildings are coming down on Walnut and, and College Avenue in Bloomington that you know were major you know h- residential landmarks, and you know it wasn't that long ago that people were talking about you know tearing down the the, the, the Monroe County Courthouse back in the 1980s and maybe putting a parking lot there or something. So, you know, it, it's, it's – it, I think, you know, we're well beyond that in, in most areas of America now. Well, there are still
1: – I mean, there are still fights. I mean, there was the building on Walnut Street that, that some people wanted to move that then eventually wasn't allowed to move. Uh, and so it seems that there is still some some definite, you know, butting of heads about how this process is supposed to go forward. Right, right. But
2: 40 years ago, it wouldn't have been a process. There would have just been a building torn down. So it's – people have recognized as a community that uh, there should be some regulation of of what happens uh, so that the public has input into the decisions that are made about the
1: character of their community you all were talking during our break that there's a a survey going on in Monroe County now of buildings 40 years old or older Amy can you tell me a little bit about how that's proceeding
3: yeah um that that's one of the tasks that is mandated for our office is to identify historic resources. And so, back in the late seventies, our office uh, started a, a county survey program. So we generally do it county by county. Um, in some instances, we do just individual cities. But um, back in the day, it was paper and black and white photography and. Starting in uh, fall of 2008, we moved into the digital age. And so the, the surveyors are out in Bloomington, as we speak, hopefully, um, working with tablet computers and digital cameras. And they're documenting any building that's 40 years old or older. They drive every street and gravel road and everything they find.
1: How do um, they know out of curiosity? How they, do you- they
3: all have a background in architectural history or preservation. And they go through a training process at the beginning of, of their you know, stint with us. Um, but they, they're looking. They estimate a the date of construction, and you know what kind of architectural style it, it may have. Um, and then they look at, at materials and any changes over time that that may have occurred. Um, take pictures, and then all of the data is getting um, converted into our online database. So,
1: is this something you plan to do for much, if not all, of the state?
3: Uh yeah, everything we last summer or fall we finally completed our 92nd county which meant that phase 1 was done. Um so yeah, we're some some counties have been or cities have been surveyed more than once depending on you know development pressure and just population growth and that sort of thing, but um you know we're it, it's not going to end anytime soon as far as we can tell. It's it's an ongoing thing because you know if if it's taken us what 40 years to document the whole state you know, before we get back to some of those uh, tail end counties, you know, stuff's going to be out of date. Things are going to be gone. New things will kind of hit that 40-year threshold. So, um, you know, yeah, it, it, it's an ongoing process. And
1: is there a way for people to access this information? Yeah.
3: Um, you can go to our division website, which is www.in.gov uh, forward slash DNR. It's Department of Natural Resources uh, forward slash historic. And then our database is called Shard S-H-A-A-R-D, which is State Historical, Architectural, and Archaeological Records Database. Um, But you can log in as a guest user. The the information for Monroe County, Bloomington um, isn't in yet because we have to do that on a a township-by-township basis. So um, we're starting in Bloomington Township and we started – about four weeks ago. So we're estimating it's probably going to take us about a year to do the city of Bloomington or longer, give or take some things. But um, so don't be looking just yet because you won't find anything <laughs> there. But they, they are out there. They've got um, car magnets on their cars that say DNR Architecture Survey. So if you see them out and about, you know, tell them what information you know. And it's, it's not a complete house history or anything like that. They're just documenting the building.
1: Reminder, you can call us at 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Follow us on Twitter also, at Noon Edition. Tina, I was looking at the list of the 10 most endangered structures in Indiana right now, and I noticed that one of them, uh, a home in Muncie, had actually been purchased by somebody uh, who was interested in trying to preserve it and save it, and I wondered if that you think might be the way forward in some ways of trying to find private benefactors to go maybe, you know, purchase by purchase, property by property, and if that would you know, kind of greatly accelerate the job your organization is trying to do?
0: Well, certainly, I mean, that that is our approach with vacant and endangered structures that we think are of preeminent importance, like the house in Muncie. Uh, there's one in Uh, Centerville, the the Governor Oliver P. Morton house, he was our Civil War governor, that was vacant and really deteriorated. But in this recessionary environment, uh, it's it's hard to get financing to restore dilapidated structures. And so we have, at Indiana Landmarks, kind of changed our MO, and we um, try to take options Sometimes we purchase outright, but we take options. And then we try to, try to line up a private buyer and close on the same day. Um, and so we're not out a lot of cash. Um, and that's we're, – we're closing today on the Oliver P. Morton house. We've sold it to a private individual who's going to restore it. Um, and and – but, you know, that one at a time <laughs> is um, – you don't you don't get very far, and so we also try to empower groups like Steve's. We have grant and loan programs for nonprofit preservation organizations all over the state, so that they can try to rescue the things that they know matter in their communities.
1: I wonder if if you and Steve have people who come to you uh, who are somewhat daunted by the task, want to help. Um, I I'm, I think of my parents who bought a house when I was a kid that was built in 1882. Um, And went back and found all of the old architectural records, determined, for instance, there used to be a doorway where there was now a wall and literally took a sledgehammer and made a doorway again, but never did anything beyond that. And, And there were a lot of great things about the house, but there were a lot of things that needed to be fixed. And it was a much larger task, I think, than they initially thought it was. Um, if if there are people, for instance, out there who might have had more <laughs> foresight than my parents had in terms of how big these these projects are, is there a way to get people over that that hill of yes, it's going to be a long term project and it's going to take a lot of sweat and probably a lot of money in some cases? Uh, do, do you have to work around that with people to to get them to you know take the leap, so to speak? Oh, sure. We we have a
2: a Queen Anne farmhouse on the western part of Monroe County that we've been trying to uh, get to someone who would restore. We we, uh, first took an option to purchase it and uh, got to the point where we couldn't get the option extended anymore, so we ended up buying the property. It's a beautiful 1890s two-story Queen Anne farmhouse, the kind of Victorian house that a lot of people just have in their head as the the dream house. But it's in pretty bad repair, uh, and uh, it it needs a, a lot of work, and it attracted a lot of people. I mean, the price was really low, uh, so it attracted a lot of people that wanted to see it and thought, "Oh, I want to buy a sixty-five thousand dollars, you know, two-story house." But you know, once they got in and saw what the, the condition and what it needed to be done, um, invariably, if they didn't say it right then, they would say it later that I can't do it. Uh, you have to find people who uh, have both um, the uh, the vision to see what, to, to imagine what it can look like once it's done, and uh, the wherewithal financially uh, to to do a project like that. And and we, we actually did uh, reach an agreement recently we're closing on July 20th on the, the sale of that property and we, we've had other situations like that but yeah it, it you definitely do have to uh, 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 I guess market it and uh, and really go through a lot of, a lot of different prospects before you find the ones for these really uh, tough nuts to crack like like these houses that are are um, you know have been let go and, but are still wonderful uh, old historic houses.
1: And I would, I would think of, for, you know, for myself, if I were to try and undertake something, there would be an ability barrier, too. I, I, I remain completely unconvinced I could undertake such an, such an operation.
2: Right, right. And some people shouldn't try to undertake something. we we'll tell people that, yeah, you me. Know. <laughs> but, but, you know, we also share our specifications that we use with our rehabilitation projects, and we put people in contact with design professionals and contractors that can help them. So if it's just a matter of not having the skills, but they, can, they have the access to the, the funding, they can still do the project. Uh, but you have to have either the skills or the funding, or usually both, to to, to have the confidence to do what some of
3: these
1: projects. What are you going to say? Amy? Well,
3: we have a historical architect on staff. His name is Dave Duval, and you don't have to be pursuing their rehabilitation tax credit programs, but that. That Dave oversees and can help guide people on their their restoration projects, but he's also available if people just have a question about an old building and what they need to do about. It. So when your parents, you know, took the sledgehammer to the doorway, it's like, oh crud, we hit something we weren't supposed to. You, know, you call Dave. <laughs> I do that with Dave, and I have my old house. And like, Dave, I found this. What do I need to do? And he's a great resource, and he's he's the big proponent of wood windows are just as good or most likely better. You just need good storm windows. And so, you know, he, he is an amazing resource and, you know, takes phone calls all the time just from people that have an old building and they are kind of overwhelmed. And, you know, I think anyone in preservation who is, you know, either owns an old building themselves or has been in it long enough, you know, you can give the preservation pep talk. Like, you you know, it, it can, it's doable. It's overwhelming. Everyone has those moments. And so, um, you know, we there are resources out there for those moments of panic when people have them?
0: I'm an English major from IU, and I am not handy. <laughs> and I restored an old house. I mean, I, you don't need to be super skilled. You need to have some degree of um, rational <laughs> rationality. And it helps to have somebody, a friend, or someone in your family that has some knowledge. But even that's not necessary. My... My family, old wood windows are really not that hard to fix. They're not. And um, I had like 65 of them in my old house. Wow. And nearly all of them were cracked or had BB holes through them or the sash weights didn't work or the lower sill was rotten. And um, all my brothers and sisters and my parents came and we fixed them all in one weekend. We had an assembly line. You know, somebody did the glazing. Somebody chipped out the old. Somebody laid down the new bead. It, and, and my mother fixed all the sash weights. So, you know, it's it, it's doable, and I think it takes some planning. You know, you, you, when people get overwhelmed, it's because they try to do ten things at once. They start ten projects, and so the whole house looks a wreck and, and is not very congenial for living. But if you think about it ahead of time and figure, okay, I need a kitchen and I need a bathroom, and, you know, then move on from there.
1: Did you it's find this happens doable. on a larger scale for the, mm-hmm. the larger municipal projects that you're trying to, to say, for instance, the, the, the bridge at New Harmony? I mean that's uh, – I would say you know take a house and multiply it by a couple of times and that's what it will take to fix the bridge. D- is there even more of a, a barrier that people are going, oh, man, I'm not sure we can do this?
0: Well, you know, we tackled the West Baden Springs Hotel when a tenth of the outside ring had collapsed, and it was in a bankruptcy proceeding in L.A. So we sort of figure if we can (laughs) can figure out that's your benchmark now. We can we can save almost anything. But I grant you, the the Harmony Way Bridge in New Harmony is a very complex and um, difficult issue because there's there's structural issues, there's political issues, there's um, two state. Uh it's uh, a hot potato. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 got a lot that needs to be sorted out.
1: Have the three of you seen instances where something could have been saved, but due to any one of a variety of the circumstances that you've discussed that you have to overcome not being overcome that 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 project didn't get done, or the the place got torn down when it didn't need to. I mean, are there, are there these stories of my golly, what could we have done if only? Well, those are that's called motivation. <laughs> when that happens, usually yeah. it fires
2: people up, and they want to make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, because sometimes buildings get torn down. Sometimes important buildings get torn down that that could have been reused and 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 kept for future generations. Uh, but a lot of times, that's what causes historic districts to get formed. People band together and say. I don't want to see any more of my neighbor's houses torn down. And they, they come together and they ask the community, you know, the city council or the, the county council or whoever it might be, uh, you know, for an historic designation to uh have a review process before things get torn down or altered.
1: Let me ask each of you just then interestingly, um we'll start with Tina and we'll go across. Give me give me two examples. One of a big time success in 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 preservation or refurbishing that you're aware of, and one of a a failure or a problem that couldn't be overcome, or, or something that you kind of maybe it's something that you kind of regret that you wish you could, you could go back and, and fix now
0: well i i 'd say the West Baden Springs Hotel is just a fabulous success story that uh, involved local people and involved Indiana landmarks, the Cook family and and everyone who toured it over a couple of decades. Um, and look at it now. If you haven't been there, you must go. It's just a beautiful place that takes your breath away, and you kind of wonder how in the world it came to be in southern Indiana.
1: really is amazing um, to stand at the bottom of the center of that dome and just kind of look up and around.
0: I took my grandson there for the first time a couple of weeks ago, and I blindfolded him and made him walk in, and then I whipped off his blindfold <laughs> when he got to the
1: middle.
0: <laughs> he said, awesome, awesome. Um and a loss, you know, years ago we had the Wabat, the old Wabash High School on our ten most endangered list, and it was a beautiful building vacant, privately owned by an individual who was mad at the city for giving him several um, substandard building violation um, citations. and we put it on our ten most endangered list, thinking that that might that we might be able to help broker some solution. But he became so enraged at the city that he attached chains to the portico of the building and to his bumper of his pickup truck and drove off and just pulled down a big chunk of the building and oh my. um and and then it then it you know, it was too late for it. Looking back, is there something different, you know, we could have done I, we, we didn't really come up with anything. I mean, that was just an, an unusual case and a whole set of circumstances. And th- that very often, there's no formula for saving a historic building, really, because each set of circumstances, each ownership situation is different. And you just got to be clear eyed and try to figure out okay, what do we need to do first and what comes after that so that you are prepared.
1: Steve and Amy, I'm going to give you both a second to think. I want to get to our phone caller who we need to get in real quick here. So we'll, we have Joseph on the line from Bloomington. Joseph, thanks for calling in to Noon Edition.
5: Hey, great. Uh, yeah, great show. I uh, just had a few questions and observations. Uh, one is I noticed that historic site on East 10th is for rent. It's the old, I think, preservation headquarters or something. What, What is the situation with that?
2: Sure, that's uh, Bloomington Restoration's right. is, uh, headquarters there. We have the Daisy Garden uh, Farmstead. It's historically called the Hinkle Garden Farmstead, but Daisy was the last uh, person there. Um, we have the two-story farmhouse where we have a museum in the ground floor, and the upstairs is our office space. And then there are other buildings on the property. It's 11 acres altogether, and that's the, uh, the second house that was built uh, when, when Daisy... Um, got married. Uh, so it's, it's from around 1920. And uh, we use that as a, uh, a, we maintain it as a rental house. And uh, it's a two bedroom apartment on the main level and a one bedroom upstairs. So in this time of year, we were re renting it. We just signed a lease on it uh, today, as a matter of fact.
5: Oh, okay. And I wondered uh, what about the big former city console building in Indy? It's massive and it seems kind of classic and I think it was used as an art show this summer. Is that an endangered thing or is that being repurposed or what?
0: Well, um, I I I would say it's not endangered um, because the city recognizes its value Uh and uh, is keeping on top of making sure that there's no water coming in. And it it shows the building to people all the time and uh, I think We will find there is a task force working on it, and there will be a solution uh, soon, I believe, that will repurpose it in some way. It may be a private use.
5: Uh Another thing I was wondering is uh, I replaced – I have an older home, and it had the double-hung windows, and I replaced it with uh, some sliders, and they're great because you can just open them and – let air in and then you can close them and you get a nice seal around the whole entire thing so sometimes a replacement window can be just as good if not better in terms of letting in more light and air than the older ones but more to the point i was wondering i was looking at several websites for a preservation and including the national one and i i couldn't find anything about this 50 year thing and i wonder if that's kind of new because the general feeling of the historic thing it seems on the national side is historical significance and now it seems to be that it's kind of changing to well somebody lived there sometime and it's older so can you address is there a changing kind of construct and what is old and is just anything old historic or does it have to have truly significance like the log cabin of a Lincoln and that kind of thing
3: well, the the fifty year rule was established when the National Register of Historic Places was established back in what, nineteen um, sixty eight? Sixty six, I think. Yeah, the, yeah, sixty six, and um, that they just determined that threshold, and so state offices like ours, and then you know other um, preservation organizations, kind of follow that fifty year threshold because that it, it used to be kind of a, a hard and fast rule. As time goes on and people realize that there, the uh, recent past kind of mid-century modern stuff, um, I think there's a little flexibility with that. But it's it's a general guideline. Um, if you go to the National Park Service – if you search National Park Service and National Register of Historic Places online, um, that will get into kind of the, the specifics, I guess, of the 50-year rule and – and what they're looking for in terms of a National Register of Historic Places application, and yeah, you you do get into what we call architectural integrity and the significance of the property. Um, all of that kind of has all but be, always been keyed around a National Register nomination. So um, that's kind of where the the initial foundation for preservation kind of started, and it's it's grown from there. But that's where a lot of the the general guidelines and things that that we follow today kind of evolved from.
1: Joseph, thanks so much for your call. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, And we appreciate all of you who have been following us on Twitter as well today. Um, Real quick, we've got about a minute left, a quick success or failure from each of Steve and Amy. I want to make sure we get in before we have to take off here. So you've got 30 seconds apiece. I'll stick with success then. Um, <laughs> the Steinsville Church uh, was ready to
2: fall down, basically. Uh, it had been abandoned for more than 30 years. And uh, we worked with the uh, the owner of it. And it was in his, basically his backyard. And he was tired of looking at it, falling down. And uh, we got an option from him and, and got, it, got it into the hands of someone, Mark Stoops, actually, who uh, agreed to restore it. And it's, it's a wonderful house now. It hasn't been changed much. It still looks like an old country church. And uh, it's right there at the top of the hill, top of Steinsville. And you know, right. it would be hard to imagine it not being there. Amy,
4: real quick.
3: Um, I would have to say the Fowler Theater up in Fowler. It's about a half hour what west of uh, Lafayette. It's just this charming little Art Deco Theater. They sent in a nomination years ago. And, and it's partial to my heart because I helped rewrite the nomination. <laughs> and then they've uh, applied for grant funding and other funding sources. But, you know, it's, it's this bright blue enameled steel building and flashy, and, yeah, it, it's fantastic. It's still run as a movie theater, so if you got a free weekend, go up to Fowler because it, it's such a great little
1: theater experience. All right. Well, thanks to the three of you so much for being here. For Mike Pashkash, Julie Raw, and Gretchen Frazee, I'm Stan Jastrzewski. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho,
4: 333-1933, online at mypremierortho.com.